Welcome to Health Matters at Sargent College. The mission of Sargent College is to advance, preserve, disseminate, and apply knowledge in the health and rehabilitation sciences. BU's Sargent College strives to create an environment that fosters critical and innovative thinking to best serve the healthcare needs of society. Each episode of Health Matters at Sargent College will include faculty, students, or alumni who will share their knowledge with you. I'm Karen Jacobs, the Associate Dean of Digital Learning and Innovation at Sargent College, and I'll be your moderator for each episode. Welcome to this episode of Health Matters at BU Sargent College. Hagare is our guest today, and she is a relatively new faculty member. Um, can you tell us about your background? And then I'll ask some questions about what work you're doing. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for that welcome. Uh, yes, I, I'd be more than happy to tell you a little bit about myself. I um, have recently joined BU after spending some time in a PhD program over at George Washington University where I studied social and behavioral sciences. And uh, during this time, I really focused my education and research on understanding the social influences to health behaviors. So really understanding why people do and don't do health behaviors and how our social um, community and environment can contribute to that. I was also fortunate enough to get my master's of public health from that same uh, location, that same university at George Washington, where I, at the time, studied community-oriented primary care because I was really interested in understanding how public health ideologies and principles can be integrated into clinical care practices. But during this time, I was just wowed um, as I learned that the majority of health outcomes, or at least uh, a, a good chunk of them, are not actually attributable to access to care or quality of care. There is a myriad of social determinants of health that exist steps before one even arrives at in a clinical space that really influence whether or not this person will be vulnerable to a certain health outcome. So uh, with that understanding, it really fueled my desire to exist a little bit more wholeheartedly in public health spaces and uh, that is what led me to that particular PhD program. And then um, through that, I came, I came to BU where I am a professor of health inequities, a, a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Health Sciences. And I'm really happy to be here. Uh, I understand that health sciences is not a public health department, but there is this underlying emphasis of public health uh, in all of its disciplines and all of its uh, courses and pathways. The students who I've, I've met here are really interested in integrating public health principles in clinical spaces, very much like myself early on in my um, education and career trajectory. So I, as a person who is traditionally trained in public health, I'm really excited to bring that background to, to this space in particular. Well, we're so happy that you're here. Um, and I know the health sciences department is excited, but um, Sargent College and Boston University um, as well. Um, you mentioned a few things that, you know, I wanna just talk about a little bit more. Um, 
could you share what courses you're teaching and how health equity principles can be promoted in the classroom? You were mentioning something about students being interested, but how, how, how can that be promoted um, in classrooms? Yeah, I would, I would love to answer that. So I'm currently teaching two courses uh, that are considered senior seminars, the first of which is health interventions in low and lower middle income countries. And the second is a course that's titled Beyond Germs and Genes, but it really means social determinants of health. So it's a fun little uh, course title there. And um, in these courses, I found that these students have been thinking about equity and health equity and what it means to uh, create health interventions that are accessible and uh, utilized by all people, regardless of age, gender, sexuality, racial and ethnic background, income, the list goes on and on. And um, in terms of making space for health equity conversations in classroom settings, particularly at Sargent, I think this kind of manifests in two ways. Uh, we have courses that are explicitly about health equity, like the two courses that I teach, maybe germs and genes a little bit more so than health interventions in low and lower middle income countries. But uh, as far as the actual course topics go, they're all centered around health equity and approaching health disparities uh, with, with social justice in mind. And um, the other pathway would be in more implicit course design. So there are these uh, competencies, these uh, core learnings that all sergeant students in the end get, regardless of their major, regardless of their uh, projected um, career trajectories. So, so most students will learn study design. Most students will learn statistics. Most students will learn health theory. And in these courses, I think there is space for health equity uh, to be integrated into these curriculum so that we understand how to carry out a study design that in and of itself is not related to social justice or improving health disparity outcomes, but um, is very aware of the fact that researchers do not exist in vacuums and community members must be involved in all aspects of study design. Um, and in these ways, we are able to then create future researchers that are well-equipped to work in spaces that are not necessarily deemed uh, equity spaces or um, health disparity work, but are furthering the health um, equity agenda because they are able to incorporate these principles into everyday practice. And um, I think it's been a really neat experience teaching these students because health equity is one of Sargent College's uh, pillars in their strategic plan. So it's not like this is new to the university or the, the college at all. And I, I went into these courses thinking, I'm going to teach these kids how to be the, the next generation of thinkers. And I am so surprised at how much they're teaching me with their own experiences and knowledge. And I think by simply offering them an opportunity to express how they feel about um, health outcomes and health behaviors and the systems that might facilitate or hinder health, um, the opportunity for health for so many people, uh, allows them to hear from each other and understand that these are complicated issues and we're all really grappling with them. And maybe at this stage, as an undergraduate student, you're not equipped to be able to make 
incredibly impactful change, but we can work together to understand how we can do that in the future. So that's how I see health equity manifesting in the classroom. And I'm really excited to continue learning from my students and my colleagues on how I can be of service in furthering this um, priority of Sargent College. I loved, um, I loved what you shared. And I, I liked very, very much about the implicit way um, that you're seeing this happening. Um, and learning from students, we're learning from students, they're learning from us. Um, I think that's a, a really wonderful way of describing um, understanding health equity. Yeah, I think I was really pleasantly surprised because I think for the most part, academy, the academia or the academy, we have a, a little bit of a negative uh, stereotype towards us where we're really focused on producing research, high impactful research. We're really focused on um, getting, getting the name of the university out there in these scholarly activities. But here at Sargent, it is so much more than that. There is uh, a value placed on implementation and dissemination sciences. And this is not implementation and dissemination sciences are not explicitly health equity focused, but uh, they are a means to make sure that science is not only in the hands of scientists. It's a, it's a means to make sure that the communities that are giving us this research are also benefiting from these outcomes. And, it, and the, these kind of principles are so ingrained in the, the current curriculum for Sargent students that it really makes my work so much easier. I love it. And, and what you're describing is, in some ways, knowledge translation. Um, yes. getting, getting that out. And one of our goals with um, Health Matters, our podcast that you're on, is to do that. And I'm, I'm grateful that you're sharing um, your lived experience um, with teaching. I've got a couple more questions because I'm so interested in having you share your research, um, recent project regarding anemia reduction in India through a social norms-based community health intervention. Could you talk about that? Yes, I would love to. So I mentioned that during my doctoral program, I worked in um, social science spaces and understanding the social influences to health behaviors. And that really manifested through one particularly large project uh, in Orissa or Odisha, India a state off of the east coast of, of India. And uh, this project started off as kind of like this broad um, desire to address this, this chronic condition of anemia among women of reproductive age. And anemia is a blood disorder that's characterized by uh, low hemoglobin or your body's inability to, to carry oxygen through the blood. And um, it's a easily manageable disease for the most part, just maintaining a nice iron rich diet is enough. And whether or not you think about how much iron you're taking, usually um, in a lot of places, you are able to consume enough iron. But in India, most, most people are vegetarian. Further in Odisha, India, uh, there are a lot of rural communities that are characterized by low income. And so it's really hard for, for people to be able to have access to the food security that could lead to an iron rich diet. 
Um, so we see incredibly high levels of anemia in, in India in particular, and in many places around the world. Um, and we wanted to understand why so many people are suffering from this easily manageable uh, chronic disorder. And another thing I want to mention about anemia is even with, with these poor diets, there is this very simple pill that you can take an iron folic acid supplement pill. So you're just supplementing your iron intake with, with a, um, a, a pill. And we're used to doing that all the time. Um, I personally supplement my vitamin D intake because I don't uh, get the opportunity to spend enough time outdoors. But this particular iron supplementation is recommended by the World Health Organization in countries that uh, the, where the prevalence of anemia exceeds, I believe it's 40%, and, and India falls into this category. So to combat anemia, the World Health Organization suggests that in these countries, women should take this iron supplement once a week. Um, however, if they're pregnant, they should take it every day because they're more likely to uh, suffer anemia. And uh, we decide we had this, we had the luxury, I should say, of having a lot of uh, time and money for this project. So we were able to do a year of formative research where we just really got to talk to people through a bunch of focus group discussions and key informant interviews and understand really what was at the heart of this problem. Why is it that this simple behavior of taking a pill once a week isn't really being adhered to when it could prevent you from having anemia? And what we found was uh, really interesting. We found that the barriers and facilitators existed on so many levels. Uh, at the individual level, we know that women do not see themselves as susceptible for anemia. And I thought that was really fascinating because thinking about my own self and my own health, I don't think of myself as susceptible to anemia because I don't have a lot of education around it. But what we found was that these women know what anemia is and they know that it makes you tired. Um, so they know that the primary symptom of anemia, especially in mild cases, is weakness and fatigue. Uh, but when they feel weakness and fatigue, they weren't ascribing it to anemia. And this ended up speaking a lot to the day-to-day -day activities of women in general in that area. Uh, where just so much of the, the household responsibility falls on these women. So they're working from the moment they wake up to the morning, the moment they go to bed, they're, they're taking care of their families in the mornings. And then when their family goes off to school or to work, they themselves are then working, uh, usually physically demanding jobs. And then at the end of it all, they take care of their families again. And so when you do all of this in a day, and uh, your, your whole day is characterized by physical activity, then that exhaustion you feel at the end of the day seems kind of like, well, duh, I'm exhausted. I just worked really hard. So they're ascribing this tiredness they're feeling to a hard day's work, which isn't inaccurate, but it's also um, failing to acknowledge that sometimes that tiredness is a sign of illness. So um, what we found was that 60 some odd percent of people um, in Odisha, women of reproductive age were anemic, but only 6% knew that they were anemic. Another, another thing that came out of the formative research was aside from, uh, acknowledging your anemia, there were a plethora of social influences that impacted whether or not a woman made the decision to, to take iron supplementation or, um, engage in iron rich food, uh, diets. As far as the diet goes, there is a gender norm that 
women take care of their families in, in a way that I just described. But here, uh, women, especially mothers, are expected to eat last in their families. And it's the women themselves do not take this as a sign of oppression and it's and it shouldn't be they they do it willingly as uh, a way to show love to their families uh so so most women do allow their husbands and their children's and oftentimes their mother and father-in-laws who live with them to eat before they do and when you exist in these really food insecure areas you are not left with much after everybody else has eaten what's left is not usually enough to to supplement your iron needs or or excuse me meet your iron needs and as far as this pill to combat the, the lack of iron-rich diets, women do not believe that there is an expectation for them to take it if they are not pregnant. Um, for decades, the Indian government has been trying to promote iron folic acid supplementation among women, but they've really been focusing on pregnant women and in-school um, children. So they distribute these iron supplements to children in school or teenagers in school, and they distribute it to pregnant women through frontline health workers. But if you're not pregnant, you have to be able to identify your anemia and then go to a health center and seek treatment before you're given iron supplement pills. Um, and that, that has, a, there's issues with that, especially when you're not recognizing anemia within yourself. And um, when you take into account that these women exist in really rural, sometimes isolated villages, and it's difficult to get to a health center, becomes even more problematic. And there is now this prevailing notion that many people in my community don't take iron supplements, and they're fine. So I don't need to take iron supplements. And um, it's posed a problem. So as you can tell by my long-winded answer, there's a lot that came out of that formative research, and we were able to design a community health intervention that approached um, these community barriers or facilitators and these uh, social determinants of health that came out in the, the formative research. And we did this through a number of ways, but I recognize that I've been going on and on, so maybe I, I can save that one. No, that this is this is so interesting. Um, I think um, I I want to hear, and I'm sure our listeners want to also to hear what you did. Oh well, then I would be more than happy to. I'm so I'm so proud of this project. So uh, this community intervention had so many components, and at the start of it, we called this up uh, the approach that we use the T4 approach. The first T stood for train, where we adopted a train the trainer models. Um, so in within every village that was involved in this uh, trial to, to evaluate the effectiveness of this intervention, um, a community health facilitator led these group meetings where people from the village, primarily women, but other, other members of the community, including the husbands of women, including um, older women who are mother-in-laws, um, were involved in these community meetings where they discussed the education aspect and um, they discussed why IFA is important, why anemia is a bigger burden than they thought. And uh, the idea was that through participatory learning action activities, these uh, members of, of these meetings were able to then go out and uh, communicate what they had just learned to other, other neighboring uh, people. In addition to this, they had there was a tell component. So the, the T4, the second T is for tell, where uh, we were able to tell um, the benefits of anemia by creating these 
really well-produced videos. Again, we had the luxury of um, a well-funded uh, program. So, so we were able to create these videos that the community members that came to our uh, community engagement meetings that occurred monthly were able to show uh, to others in their community as they, as they uh, communicated the lessons that were learned or the ideas that came to mind during these community um, training engagements. Uh, the other um, T, which for some reason is blanking my mind, related to what I believe is the most innovative, innovative component of the intervention it is the component that really tried to address the social norms barriers. So of course, having community settings where people are talking and engaging in dialogue about the importance of iron supplements for all women, not just pregnant women, not just in school women, pushed uh, positive social norms around the behavior. But uh, in these meetings, we had the opportunity to test women's hemoglobin. And um, I think we started off saying we would test 15 women every month in these meetings and uh, it would be a public test. But it turns out that more than 15 women wanted their hemoglobin tested. Uh, so I think we ended up having to accommodate well more than 15 uh, hemoglobin tests every, every month. But the idea was that in these public spaces, uh, the women are getting these hemoglobin tests. And once they get their results, which is instantane instantaneously, these hemoglobin tests are um, point of care tests and they're just a quick stick and poke. Uh, but once they get their results, they're, they're given to them on these colored cards that are kind of shaped like a blood drop for anemia. And if you are not anemic, you received a green card. If you uh, were had mild anemia, you received a yellow card. And if you had moderate and orange and severe anemia or red. And at the very start of this, um, we asked the women to take those cards and place them on this massive chart that everybody at the meeting could see uh, where all the greens were aligned together, all the yellows were together, similarly the orange and the reds. And in the very beginning, there were a lot of orange and reds and some yellows um, on this sheet and not a lot of green cards. Uh, so many people had anemia, but as the months went by, you can see this trickle of cards turning green or turning yellow and very few cards were red or even orange. And um, this was a way to visually signal to everybody that everybody in my community or most people in my community must now be changing their behavior positively uh, because their objective results, the, these objective health outcomes are improving. And it built, it built this kind of community togetherness because it started to uh, provide a little bit of social pressure uh, to do well together. Uh, my neighbors want me to succeed. They're, they're tracking my success. These kinds of thoughts were introduced in that component of the intervention. And uh, the final fourth T was for tweak. Uh, so we had an ongoing monitoring and processing evaluation system where we were able to hear firsthand from the community facilitators what was working and what wasn't working. And we were able to tweak the intervention on this ongoing basis to make sure that we were really reaching who we wanted to reach. And it turned out that this was um, such a great blessing because we started this intervention in September of 2019. And it was supposed to go on for quite some time. And as we all know, March 2020 came around and we were hit with a pandemic and getting together in these community spaces was no longer viable. 
And that was the, the bulk of our intervention was creating spaces for people to come together and discuss the importance of anemia in women's health. And so uh, luckily through these monitoring and evaluation um, processes, we, processes we had set up, we were able to understand from the community facility, facilitators who are directly uh, communicating with our participants that there was still a desire for a health intervention um, even during this pandemic. Of course, it could not look this way anymore. Um, it had to be conscious of social distancing and uh, could not involve crowds of more than two or three people at a time, but we were able to shift our intervention to, to look like how the community members needed it at the time. And we were able to incorporate more COVID-19 prevention practices um, alongside our anemia prevention um, education modules. So I thought that was a really neat part of our intervention. Wow, um, you really were agents of change. You know, I, I um, do believe so. And I, you see those results as they happen, which was so incredible because usually you have to wait until after the trial is over. And of course we have that data too, uh, but it, it, it was just so cool to see visually all of these green cards start popping up over the months and uh, the, knowing that anemia is being reduced by these activities. Um, a fantastic project. Thank you so, so much. Oh, I'm, I'm so impressed. Um, one last question, because we have just a few more minutes. How do you see your research agenda developing at BU? Are you going to continue with what you just described or um, what are you seeing your research agenda being? That is a really great question. I do think that there is still a lot of work left to be done on this current project. I, um, I as I keep mentioning, this, this program had a lot of luxuries. And uh, because of the, the time and money, we were able to collect a lot of data, uh, survey data, biometric data, hemoglobin data, physical activity, work capacity, cognitive abilities, these, the list goes on and on. And I think now that we understand very surface level, how social norms might influence anemia, I think it's, it's time to get into a little bit of the com complex complexities, excuse me, of, of this relationship between social factors and anemia. So for example, uh, as you can tell from, from our earlier questions, health equity is really important to me. And uh, one thing we haven't really explored is the extent to which members of marginalized groups in, this, uh, in these communities that we worked with, how they were affected by anemia um, and our intervention. So one way to think about these marginalized groups are members of disadvantaged caste groups or um, what's known as tribal populations. So these caste and tribal populations, at least uh, members of the more marginalized ones, are really disadvantaged in many health systems and in India, even though um, by law they are not allowed to be discriminated against, we still see it happening in very informal ways that limit their ability to access health services. And we have very surface level um, data currently in review right now that shows that the RANI project, the Reduction in Anemia Through Normative Innovations project, um, uh, known as the Rani Project, is able to reach these populations, but we still haven't been able to unpack how. How do you reach vulnerable populations? How do you, how do you get those that are usually missed in um, health outcomes? So here at BU, I am so lucky because these students are so brilliant, and I have a few um, 
research assistants who are helping me in that particular endeavor. Uh, but from there, I think it really, I, I'm, I think I'm really excited to see where the data takes me and where the, the social needs take me as um, we see really cultural practices around the world shift drastically after this pandemic. Um, so that is, that is where my research agenda stands as of now. And I'd also like to note that, um, I should have said this when I was discussing the Ronnie project in more detail, that there was a really great team behind this, uh, the Ronnie project. The original um, brainchild came from, uh, well, who is now a chair at Johns Hopkins University, but at the time he was at George Washington University, and he assembled this phenomenal team, uh, Dr. Rajiv Ramal, who is uh, one of the leaders in norms research and um, he assembled a phenomenal team not only at gw but in india so we worked with a firm called ipe global limited and they handled all of the implementation activities so they really were there every single day um, handling the intervention community communicating with policy stakeholders um, really facilitating this feedback loop i discussed and um, additionally we worked with a data collection firm in Odisha, India, a very, uh, what was then a small firm uh, who collected all of the, the data for us at the local level. And uh, this team of over 40 women, or excuse me, over 40 data collectors was primarily made up of women. And for a women's empowerment project, I thought that was incredible. Uh-oh, did I lose you? Yep, I'm here. Okay. Um, absolutely. Um, thank you for sharing that. And, and thanks for sharing your enthusiasm. Um, I'm so happy that you're a faculty member at Sargent College. And I look forward to um, learning how your research and career unfolds. So thank, thank you. Thank you. I'm the one who is thankful. This has been a blast. I am very much bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Just so happy to be here. So uh, this was this was really fun for me. Uh, well, thank you. And I know that our listeners are going to thoroughly enjoy listening. And if people want to reach you, how can they do that? Is there an email that they can um, contact you? Yeah, they uh, sure can. My email is really easy to remember. It's just hy at bu.edu. Um, which, which is, uh, I think really great for my students who, um, can remember it easily. Yeah. I love it. Thank you. And again, thank you for being on health matters, the Sargent college podcast and our listeners. Thank you for listening and subscribing to our podcast. I wish everyone a wonderful day.